Picture your produce aisle. Strawberries, tomatoes, lettuce, celery, onions. These crops fill shopping carts across the country, and a full third of them come from California. There was a time, though, when California fields grew mostly wheat. Huge tracts of the land we now know as the salad bowl of the world were then pumping out massive quantities of grain, not fruits or vegetables. In the early 20th century, California farming underwent a major transformation that created the abundance you can see in your produce aisle today. And one particular group of California farmers really laid the foundation for that transformation. We don't often hear their names and many of their stories have been long buried. The early success of the Japanese farmers led the Japanese to be productive farmers, but instead of being praised, they got attacked and the attack came in the form of alien land laws. In a lot of ways, you could say Japanese immigrants started California's produce industry. But racist immigration laws and policies tried to push them out of the rural landscape. A few influential farming families dug in, shaping the industry in powerful ways. Many others left farming as a way of preserving their families and moving forward with their lives. If we as a, as a California we, as a diverse, beautiful, California, we want to heal some of the wounds of the past. We have to look at what happened before and why has there been an exodus out of farming by some communities of color. As we'll hear, the Japanese-American story in California farming is about tremendous ingenuity that's met with a pretty sinister backlash. And it's about ugliness that's met with some pretty powerful resistance you might never look at your produce section in the same way again. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the Calag Roots Podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming in order to shed some light on current issues in agriculture. This is the first podcast in our second story series, and this year we're focusing on stories that highlight the waves of immigrants who built the California agricultural industry. Check it out at www.agroots.org. People ask Central Valley peach grower Mas Masamoto to tell his family history so often that he can rattle it off without thinking. Quick family story is my both sets of grandparents were poor farmers in Japan. The Masamotos immigrated to California in the early 1900s. They brought wives, settled in an agriculture area because that's all they knew what to do, uh, were farm workers. A.G. Kawamura A.G. stands for Arthur Gen. is another Japanese-American vegetable farmer. He's the former director of the California Department of Food and Agriculture. His grandparents came to the U.S. from Japan around the same time as the Masamotos. He says, like a lot of immigrants, most early Japanese farmers were only able to access land with some of the worst soil in California. The best quality farmland was too expensive. You look at the history of California, and there's a lot of places where people say, oh, you can't farm there, you can't farm on that, and lo and behold, someone shows up and figures out how to get it done. In spite of challenges like this, Japanese immigrant farmers were very successful. My guess it, it was just mainly luck and timing. Moss says this wave of Japanese immigrants arrived right when California was having a population boom overall. If you look at the, the surge in San Francisco and LA populations, they needed to have food to supply. And railroads were being built across the country. So suddenly you could transport 
products outside the state to other areas of the nation. The Japanese took advantage of this lucky timing, but they were also savvy about their business choices. And, and the key is the Japanese Americans did not grow Japanese products. You know, there was very little rice that were grown. Maybe the Kota farms were one of the few, but the Kota farms mainly grew rice for Japanese Americans who wanted rice. Uh, but like our family, you know, uh, we, we you know, they didn't grow rice. They saw a market opportunity, and Moss says they were bold enough to make the leap to grow an alien product, an alien crop, uh, and, 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 and within that, find a way of finding some success. When Moss talks about alien crops, he means all those fruits and vegetables we can pick up in the produce aisle today. So you're in a new country farming a foreign crop because peaches, nectarines, grapes were not raised in Japan, or at least the part of Japan that they uh, were used to farming. So how do you know, how do you farm? How do you know how to do this? Farmers came up with a great idea for solving this problem. So they would have uh, these the company, the salespeople would go around and they'd interview farmers, talk about what they're growing and how do you grow potatoes, how do you grow yams, how do you grow sugar beets, how do you grow grapes, and they'd put this in this booklet that explained in Japanese how to prune a tree, you know, how to do these things, and these booklets were published annually, I believe, and it allowed all these farmers to start learning in their own language how different farming techniques were being done. So it freed them of always being at the mercy of somebody else telling them and controlling information, and also it developed this, this amazing network that they began to learn of different farmers. The Japanese were extremely innovative in other ways, too. They improved the bad soils of farmlands that others couldn't. They pooled their money to loan to one another when conventional banks refused to serve them. And they formed networks of farmers and truckers who helped each other sell produce to urban markets up and down the state. In that network, if you think about it, you only needed one fluent speaker of English. And that's the end one who was the seller uh, who sold the produce to the grocery stores. Or you only needed one really good financial accountant type of guy or woman. Or you only needed one real cutthroat salesperson. And I remember notoriously these were Japanese Americans who tended to be taller, tended to be bigger. I mean, all those traits that you start thinking, ah, this is that undercurrent of the business qualities. And, and they tended to have this big, deeper voice. Because we had, I remember just growing up, the same type of thing, the buyer would come and he was, I was afraid of this guy, you know? Uh, you know but, but he was good. This idea of small-scale farmers forming networks to sell to bigger markets is making a comeback now in the local food movement. These days, we're calling them food hubs. Masamoto says that the Japanese were using the food hub model a full century before it became trendy. Clearly, the idea of food hubs, it grew it within the context of, of immigrant cultures out of necessity. So, using all these ingenious techniques for financing, growing, and selling fresh fruits and vegetables, by the 1920s, Japanese-American growers dominated the industry. According to Libby Christensen, food systems researcher at Colorado State University, Japanese farmers were growing 90% of all the celery in the state, 88% of all the berries, 70% of all the tomatoes.
This success wasn't celebrated by the established power system in California, however. Here's Libby Christensen again. So in the early 1900s, um, the governor of California commissioned a study looking at the importance of Japanese labor in California, particularly in agriculture. The report found that California agriculture couldn't survive without Japanese labor. But that didn't go over well in a state Senate that was busy passing anti-Asian laws. And so they fired the guy and totally suppressed this document. Racist rhetoric also swept national politics. In 1913, the U.S. passed the first alien land law. It said that immigrants who weren't eligible for citizenship couldn't own land or even lease land for more than three years at a time. But Japanese farmers found ways to work around these laws. There were these various loopholes. That's Cecilia Zhu, associate professor of history at UC Davis. She says Japanese immigrants persevered finding ways to work around the laws. If you wanted to have a farming partnership, then each partner could sign a three-year lease. And so you, if you had three partners, you could have a nine-year lease. And they figured out ways to own land anyway. The primary way after 1913 that Japanese immigrants went around it was to, uh, if they wanted to purchase property, to put it in the names of their American-born minor children. Then in 1920, the U.S. passed a second alien land law that said children were no longer allowed to own land. But Cecilia noticed that in many lease records... It's like the day that a child turns 18, they're at the recorder's office and they're signing a lease on behalf of their family. Anti-Japanese fear continued to grow. In 1920, California State Senator James Phelan ran for re-election on a vicious anti-Japanese platform. Tom Izu, the director of the California History Center Foundation, puts it like this. He wanted to build the wall, too, to keep out all the Asian hordes. And he, that's... That was his campaign, right? I think it was the state senate campaign, which says, keep California white. And there's a big poster of him, and that's what it says. And he was referring to Asians. He wasn't, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it applied to everybody, but he was specifically going after Japanese at the time. For fourth-generation Japanese-American farmer Nkiko Masamoto, unfair treatment under the law and systemic racism is a defining part of the Asian-American farming story in California. I'm hypothesizing that because the construction and the rise of nationalism and xenophobia was so strong in rejecting Asian immigrants, there was a real necessity for the community to work together. The rejection combined with the sense of str strength in collective as opposed to strength in the individual, if that was part of why the whole community helped each other um, make a place for themselves despite these incredibly intense obstacles. Of course, this history is complicated. Not all Californians wanted to persecute the Japanese. In fact, many people knew that they were dependent on them. Here's Cecilia Sue again. They're in this weird position where they, it's like, they have to say, well, you know, we rely on them because they do this tedious work that no other white people want to do. The strange thing is, Japanese immigrants were a relatively small part of the California population in the early 1900s. But still, there was this undeniable, overwhelming anti-Asian frenzy. If Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans weren't a significant proportion of the population, why target them so viciously? I have a historical moment where a number of things are happening all at once. 
That's Jen Sedell, a researcher at UC Davis. She explains that as the U.S. economy grew, Japanese people were one small part of a larger immigration wave. You also at that time have uh, huge numbers of immigrants coming to the U.S., in part because the U.S. is becoming an economic powerhouse. People responded with fear. And so there's a, there's a real explicit um, desire to keep out peoples that's, that's just pervading the public imaginary. And so there's a concern of lack of land, lack of jobs, needing to protect the homeland, so to speak. And there's this growing sense of what that homeland is. Her research has found anti-Japanese racism where you might not expect it, in the work of entomologists studying pests that threatened California farming. And they were obsessed with finding the point of origin of a lot of these these so-called pests. And part of that was under the guise of saying, well, if we know where they come from, then we can learn a lot about their natural predators. But also, when all your scientific energy is being put into, where did this come from? What you start to see then are what I would call patterns of blame. A lot of um, political cartoons at the time that are showing up in the newspaper very explicitly um, show this desire to kick out or keep out different groups. One particularly nasty cartoon showed Uncle Sam holding up a stereotyped image of a Japanese person in one hand and a mosquito in the other. The implied message here is that both the person and the bug are enemies that should be eradicated. I talked to Jeannie Shinozuka from the University of Washington about this over Skype. But you start to see how um, portrayals of Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants as insects, that this this was nothing new. We have newspapers that are actually making these connect, explicit connections between um, Japanese beetles coming in and invading U.S. you know U.S. land and and then saying that, you know, it's it's the same thing as Japanese, the Japanese here in the U.S., they're already invading us, they're already taking over our land. In February of 1942, President Roosevelt issued the order to lock up Japanese Americans in internment camps. So you've got to wonder, was there a line, maybe even an indirect one, between all this anti-Japanese hysteria and the way we allowed the government to force people into concentration camps during World War II? Well, it would be a very crooked line, like, like uh -huh. you suggested. It's, it's not a very straight line. Mm -hmm. But there was this need to contain them, right? This, this population that couldn't be trusted, right? Um, but to me, there, there is this connection between you, know, you have this population that's already being dehumanized well before you know World War II, and so it's not it's not that big of a leap to to suddenly decide that well we're going to lock them up and we're going to you know annihilate them over across the ocean. After internment, many Japanese families stopped farming. It's hard to say exactly how many. Some lost their farmland. Others chose not to return. Many more were probably driven away from farming even before internment by the racist land laws. Leaving farming to make a living in other industries or in cities was surely its own form of resilience. When the government takes away your land, takes away your possessions, and makes it that much more difficult for you to call a place home, 
why would the next generation be so rooted in place? That's Nikiko Masamoto again. The Masamoto family, Nikiko's grandparents, were forced into a camp. But afterward, they returned to farming. Here's her father, Mas, again. Uh, my father bought 40 acres, took a big gamble in 1948. Uh, and it's the farm that I was born on and uh, continued to farm. Uh, so I was raised on this farm and uh, started farming organically and raised a family. The Masamotos now grow two organic crops with short summer seasons and mostly sell locally to specialty stores and restaurants in the Bay Area like Chez Panisse and to a loyal following of customers who eagerly buy their fruit directly from the farm. And A.G. Kawamura's family stayed in farming too. I'm a third generation farmer, uh, grower, shipper in the terms of fresh produce. And my brother Matt and I are partners in a company called Orange County Produce which was originally called uh, Western Marketing Company of California. Um, and that was founded in 1946, just after World War II ended. The Kawamura's company is a year-round operation, stocking produce shelves across the country in big grocery chains like Kroger. They even sell globally. In some ways, the Kawamura's and the Masamoto's represent opposite poles in California farming. As different as their operations are, the Masamoto's and Kawamura's are bound together by common history. And, in fact, they're friends. Kawamura says that many Japanese farmers continued to thrive after World War II, even after what he calls the agony of internment. This is a testament to Japanese farmers' resilience, and maybe also to that strong network they built early on. And, as Kawamura pointed out to me, it's important to remember the big picture of farming history in the U.S. Over the past century, most families, regardless of race or location, gave up farming for a whole variety of economic and social reasons. Less than 1% of Americans are farming today. So what would California agriculture have looked like if more Japanese families had been able to keep farming? Moss likes to imagine it. I always wondered if certain pivotal points in history were different. Uh, if there weren't alien land laws, how would valley agriculture have been? You know, uh, where would we be as farmers? If there wasn't lo relocation and internment, what would have happened with the Japanese American community and farming at the same time? Uh, who knows? I mean, if I was a novelist, I'd write those stories. The thing is, Moss is a writer, in addition to being a peach farmer. So I asked him, what do you imagine? Oh, I, everything from, uh, uh, you know, Japanese Americans becoming, you know, this huge, you know, economic power. Uh, and sometimes I flash thinking, oh, then we'd be these wealthy, you know, capitalists, and then I'd be extremely unhappy. Okay. Moss really gets rolling. <laughs> that the Japanese Americans would come in and realize we need to clean up, you know, the you know the oil barons and the large capital the capitalists, and they'd come in and then there this samurai uh, value structure that would still predominate, you know. So then they would, you know, and then they would instill all these values at the same time, and then they open arms to all these displaced immigrant groups, you know. So now as this new wave of like Southeast Asians immigrated in, instead of coming in at the bottom rung, they'd be fitting into this vertically integrated, you know, and, and you know, Silicon Valley would have been born here in the valley, you know, and we would have launched this whole new thing, new enterprise and this fusion of capitalism mixed with values, mixed with, okay, this is enough, this is so. enough. <laughs>
<laughs> well, clearly things didn't quite happen that way. But still, Japanese farmers influenced California in a big way. For the Masamotos, staying in farming is as much about carving out a permanent place for themselves in a harsh landscape as it is about growing food. Here's Nikiko, Masa's daughter, again. For, for me, when I think about the alien land laws, I think about the significance of denying people a place to call home. The significance is not lost on me that my Jichan, my grandfather, literally planted roots in a place that ostensibly did not want him. Nikiko is now tending the very same peach trees her grandfather planted. It makes me reflect very deeply about the significance of being a fourth generation Japanese American, and I'm still here. And it's still a family farm, and we outlived those policies and intend to um, for as long as we can. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on iTunes if you subscribe to this podcast. And by the way, if you rate the Calag Roots podcast on iTunes, it will help other people discover it. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies, and I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, director of the Calag Roots Project. Special thanks to Marissa Ortega-Welch for editing and production help, and to Jen Sedell, who worked closely with us on this story. Big thanks go out also to everyone whose voices you heard here. Nikiko and Moss Masumoto, Eiji Kawamura, Tom Izu, Libby Christensen, Jeannie Shinozuka, Isao Fujimoto, and Cecilia Zhu. Thanks also to folks who gave me important background information for this story, including Naomi Hirahara, Warren Hayashi, Patricia Wakita, Nina Ichikawa, and Valerie Matsumoto. The music for our podcast was by Komiku, and the Kalag Roots theme music is by Nangdo.